2018 Albany Avenue in Brooklyn to 2019 New York Avenue in Seaford, New York. It's 5 p.m. in the five boroughs and across New York State, and it's five days from the end of the year. And time for your year-end edition of Max and Murphy, coming to you live from 99.5 WBAI, listener-sponsored, non-commercial radio. I'm Jarrett Murphy from CityLimits.org. And this is Ben Max from GothamGazette.com. What a year it's been. We have a great show in store today with looking back and looking ahead. We do. And Ben, I have to admit something. I feel like I've known you long enough. I can admit it. I've always hated New Year's. Uh, it's an entirely arbitrary uh, holiday. Okay. When I was a kid, it was always a signal you had to go back to school, and I hated that. When I was a teenager, I seemed always to be thwarted at doing anything really cool for New Year's. I remember once. Well, that's a problem. Yeah. Once I spent it drinking with friends in a cemetery, which is perhaps not an auspicious way to start a new year. Sounds fairly um, typical. But I will say that it does provide a handy point at which to take stock of a year that's gone by, a year that's coming forward, and in New York anyway, it also does align with the beginning of legislative and executive terms, whether at the city or state level, and so for our particular purposes, it's a, it's a handy handy mark. It is, and I like that, generally speaking, away from work and politics and life also, just marking the new year, looking back, looking ahead a little bit. I'm not too big on New Year's resolutions, although I like to create some for the mayor or the governor, uh, so maybe we'll, we'll get to some of those, but, um, but let's get into to it. We're going to uh, discuss some of the top stories of 2018 here today that we've decided are sort of the things that we want to reflect on a little bit as the year is turning. And then we'll talk a little bit about what we think are the big storylines for 2019, knowing full well that within a couple weeks of the new year, our list might be blown right out of the water by surprise developments or you know something happening that we, of course, did not expect. Just look at 2018 and the resignation of Eric Schneiderman, for example. So knowing that, though, we're going to present some of those we'll, we'll ideas. We'll wade into it. And so it's interesting you mentioned that because the first thing we have on our list for the biggest stories that we thought uh, dominated the year in 2018, and by that we mean stories that will have the longest lasting effects, that were most interesting, the most important, was a story we could foresee um, that it was going to occur. Its its depth and nature were not foretold to us, and that was the 2018 elections. Yes, and these were these became more interesting based on the Schneiderman resignation, certainly, but they were interesting beyond that. And the two biggest storylines, at least when we talk about local, we're not quite at the national stage, but the two biggest storylines certainly were the governor fighting for a third term, trying to hold off Cynthia Nixon, who was a very interesting, somewhat surprised candidate and ran a very spirited, tough campaign. And of course, the battle over the state Senate, which has had major implications. Yeah, exactly. I think we knew going into uh, this year that Cuomo was going to sustain some challenge. I remember very clearly this time last year uh, wondering who that was going to be, You know, whether it was going to be Stephanie Minor, right. Cynthia Nixon's name certainly was in the mix, Jumani Williams was talked about, uh, a couple other folks had kind of dangled Everybody liked talking about Bill de Blasio, but we knew that wasn't going to happen. Exactly. Right. Um, Schneiderman at one point was discussed, but but they sort of made peace. They did. They, they yes. made up. Um, but yes, it ended up being a very a very interesting race. And of course, uh, Nixon ran, um, was the sole uh, real challenger of, of uh, uh, Mr. Cuomo. And, in the primary. In the primary. And she had what she said was an effect on the governor, even though he did beat her by 500,000 votes. And it was, uh, uh, in some ways, it looked like an easy win for him. But um, here's Cynthia talking about that. Some people have called this the Cynthia effect. That's not what I 
call it. I call it what happens when we hold our leaders accountable. This race for the Democratic nomination may be over, but the fight for the soul of the Democratic Party is just beginning. And so she had that claim, and that was something that um, many of her surrogates and I believe her campaign strategist, Rebecca Katz, said on the show, too, the Cynthia effect, the idea that it was the challenge from the left that pushed Andrew Cuomo on many different issues, criminal justice and other ones. Uh, What did you think of that idea? I think there's a little bit to it. I think, you know, one of the most interesting things is that Andrew Cuomo has been moving left with the party since he sort of saw some of the writing on the wall in 2014. Out of nowhere, Zephyr Teachout challenged him and really captivated this energy on his left that was upset with him. And he took notice of that and made some significant adjustments there most significantly on two issues, environmental policy and education policy. And so he started then moving further and further to the left. He did the $15 minimum wage. I mean, he really, that was sort of a wake-up call for him that he had to come out of his first-term centrism, at least to some extent on some issues. And he did that. So I don't know that Cynthia Nixon really drove him that much further left. I think it's been a progression. But I do think that not having a challenger, let's just, you know, if we think about that for a second, he probably wouldn't have proposed the the same policies that he's now proposing for 2019 if he hadn't yet again seen some significant sort of energy on the left that is anti-Cuomo. Correct. And it's worth noting, too, that the issue that Cynthia Nixon first lit on to use against Andrew Cuomo was not really an ideologically defined issue. It was the MTA. It was Cuomo's MTA pushing him on that. I don't know if she ever got that charge to stick. The governor has very skillfully tried to blame the MTA and the mayor and, and shield responsibility, shirt responsibility in that manner. Um, he has committed fully now to congestion pricing, um, and that might be partly because that issue was put very firmly on his plate, although I think any candidate would have done that. Interestingly, one of the effects, I think, of Cynthia Nixon being in the race and of Andrew Cuomo just facing a challenge in a year where he knew at the outset there was also going to be corruption trials involving his former associates with him, there were dangers for him this year, was Andrew Cuomo's uh, very public stance on NYCHA coming out in the early weeks of 2018 and really hammering that home, really owning that issue, um, using it to some degree as a cudgel against his longtime rival slash friend, Mayor de Blasio, that wasn't seen as an element of the Cynthia effect. It wasn't an issue that she had mentioned, but it certainly seemed like the governor taking a bolder stance on an issue where he hadn't been particularly active than maybe he would have done if there weren't a real election going on. I think that's absolutely right. I think he, seeing a challenge on his left, figured out several spots to sort of pull levers. He also moved forward um, additionally on legalizing recreational marijuana before Nixon was even in the race. He put together a panel to discuss it, but he sort of knew somebody was coming. And so he started to move in that direction. Again, if there had been nobody, maybe he wouldn't have done some of that stuff. But he he did some of it before it was even Cynthia Nixon that was clearly there. And there are several things that she made central to her campaign that he is still not supportive of, like single payer health care, universal rent control. And perhaps her biggest issue going back decades, education funding, he has basically said, I'm not going anywhere near where you wanted me to go on that to her and the activists who are behind her on that issue. So if anything, the Cynthia effect is mild uh, to me, if, if anything. One other thing I'd mention on that, and that leads into just a little bit more on this first big story of 2018, which is 
That challenge probably also helped the governor decide to dissolve the independent Democratic conference in the Senate. But just about all of them wound up losing anyway. These, these groups and activists on the left had already decided that they were going to do everything they could to recruit good candidates, back them, get turnout up, really have a huge strategy for defeating those incumbents in the IDC. And so maybe Cuomo did that as, as part of a strategy, but then they all wound up losing anyway. So I don't know how much credit you know, there is there, but, but certainly the help to get those challengers over the top. Totally. And that is a huge part of this 2018 storyline was the loss of the people who had helped to, to who had formed and staffed peopled the um, independent democratic conference which for many years had caucused or aligned itself anyway with republicans allowing them to maintain control of that body uh, that was a stunning result i felt on election night i think everyone expected one or two would lose some of the candidates facing them seemed very strong well-funded um, just well-prepared candidates but to see six uh, incumbent senators lose including real giants of the state like jeff klein was uh, a stunning outcome and i think it's one of those things we'll talk about as the show goes on echoes of that into the new year, but but really a, a remarkable um, ability to attack candidates and to use what was in first seem a very arcane kind of inside baseball attack line. They were a member of the IDC. Wait, what's that? Do people right. care about that? The line from IDC and former IDC members was people don't care about that. They want to know that we're keeping the lights on and that they're earning enough money and the schools are good and the trains are running. But in fact, the IDC line, the ability of linking that to Republicans and therefore to Donald Trump proved fatally successful. Yes, that, and I'm glad you hit on that because the Donald Trump factor was hanging over so many elections, including those IDC primaries. And then, of course, the general elections where Democrats did so well defeating Republicans or holding on to some tightly won seats to take this massive majority in the state Senate. So that's another obvious big takeaway from this election cycle. And we hinted at this a little bit, but Letitia James going from public advocate to attorney general, top storyline of the year, certainly. She makes history as the first woman of color elected statewide. She will now have massive powers uh, in the new year and has, of course, promised to uh, take on Donald Trump. It's such an example of, as you mentioned at the top, the way that things can change, totally landscape can totally be altered. We were talking in early 18 about people beginning to gear up for the 2021 mayoral race. Letitia James was a big name on that list. Eric Schneiderman has an article about him in The New Yorker, resigns within hours, totally reshuffles um, the state's political landscape. There was thought there might be an uh, interim election that did not occur. Um, it was a, a hard-fought race. We had all four candidates from the Democratic primary on our show. Um, there was, uh, it got personal at times, especially between between she and, um, and Zephyr Teachout, about their qualifications and their position on uh, corruption and holding uh, Governor Cuomo accountable. But yeah, Letitia James making history and in so doing actually setting up to um, a, an election in 2018 we'll talk about later to, to replace her as public advocate. And just one last note on the takeaways from the 2018 elections. We have to mention, and we'll get back to her, but Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez upsetting Joe Crowley in a Queens and Bronx district. Now, that was back in June. It's almost like she's been in Congress for months now, but she actually isn't even quite there yet. Um, she'll be inaugurated soon. But that really shook up the world. And when you combine that with the Cynthia Nixon challenge, the IDC results, but you still had Andrew Cuomo come out on top in the way he did, he was typical Andrew Cuomo sort of spiking the football and saying this progressive wave may be out there, but it's certainly not worried about me. And here's a clip of him saying something along those lines. 
But the word pragmatic is to make the point that there is nothing theoretical, academic, elitist, or abstract about needing to put food on the table, or pay for health care, or pay for a mortgage, or pay a tuition bill. We're about real people with real problems. And our progressive government has proven that we can provide opportunities for all New Yorkers. That the president's calculus is wrong. Society's success is not a zero-sum game. It's not I win only if you lose. It's we all win bigger when we work together. So that was the governor talking on election night. That was general election night talking about his victory and his philosophy. Um, but yes, obviously, the Ocasio-Cortez, Ocasio-Cortez victory was really one shoe dropping. The other shoe to drop was the IDC victories. And the Cynthia Nixon loss, whatever the Cynthia effect was or wasn't, she got 500,000 plus votes in that loss. That is a tremendous amount of support for a first-time candidate who had very little money, no institutional support, no editorial boards backing her. Um, so I think the argument that the Ocasio-Cortez win was a fluke, that Joe Crowley wasn't minding the store that we've heard, uh, that might be true to some degree, but obviously there was something in the air in 2018, and that was expressed in the election. Second big story of 2018 we'll discuss is, as you said, one of the key planks of Cynthia Nixon's campaign against the governor. It was also a key plank of general election challengers to the governor, and that is his management of the MTA. This was discussed pretty much nonstop throughout 2018, whether it was on the governmental side or the political side. I mean, this was a huge storyline of 2018. And as we get towards 2019, the story is not that much different as where I sit, although there's a few tea leaves that have that have come out. That's right. I think if anything, what has happened since this subway crisis really burst into the open in the summer of 2017 is that people have gotten used to a level of crisis. So it doesn't maybe feel as urgent um, every day because now we have been acculturated to delays and problems. And we have seen maybe some improvements in, in some lines at some time. But yes, it's still very much a storyline. It was a big storyline all year. Um, Andy Byford putting forward a plan to try to address the subway system in a long-term way, a very expensive plan, still some question about how it's going to be paid for, even if congestion pricing is on the table, a bus action plan that kind of mirrored it too, and some movement on some of the emergency repairs. Uh, but continuing debate with the city about who's supposed to pay for it all. One of the most interesting aspects of the MTA story to me is that Governor Cuomo both took responsibility for it and acknowledged that really people, including Mayor de Blasio, had really sort of turned public opinion, I think, looking at him as the person who really is ultimately responsible for the MTA, which was a pretty big feat. Um, And took some ownership and he knew he had to sort of announce some things and move some things forward but always continued to play the game of well it's still an authority and it's still not really mine and I only get to appoint uh, plurality and not a majority of the board members and yes I get to appoint the chair but then there's you know people on the board that can veto the capital plan you know without my say and he continues to do this even as we're close to the, the new year and one thing which we can get back to is 
he's clearly lining things up to not only pass congestion pricing, but push the mayor to use more city funds towards the MTA next year. That's correct. I found that fascinating, the way that he and his people continue to talk about these very kind of arcane legal justifications for their position about, you know, who had leased the rails from whom and what the nature of the agreements several decades back over control of the MTA and the New York City transit system looked like. Um, For a governor who is so savvy, such a, a great a political compass in terms of how to talk to the electorate, which typically will lead someone to talk about broad strokes and kind of big ideas to kind of dive down into the details like that, indicated that he was A, very concerned about this as a potential talking point about him, but also B, that he was not going to budge on the idea that the city had to foot some of the money. And as you said, we'll continue to see that. Right. And listen, he brought in Andy Byford. Uh, They need to figure out new leadership. He's talking about reforming the structure of the MTA. They need to figure out cost controls. There's a huge number of questions about the MTA moving forward. But very clearly, the public discussion made it so that the governor really needs to address this. And he knows that. And they did take some steps. And we did see, I believe the data shows a little bit of improvement in terms of timeliness. And we really need to see things move forward in 2019. But nobody still should expect drastic improvement soon. It's really about this long-term plan where they really need to start uh, changing out the signals and doing a lot of big projects, basically on a line-by-line basis. So maybe if you're lucky, it'll be your your line uh, towards the top of the list. Let's hope so. You know, the two stories we've talked about so far, the election and the MTA, those are the kind of stories that really nobody can ignore. I mean, anybody in the city anyways can be affected by the MTA somehow, even if it just puts more cars on the road. Obviously, most people listening to the show were aware of the election, voted in it, certainly got some mailers, saw some commercials on TV. The next thing we want to talk about are the corruption trials, which seem like an almost week-to-week litany this year. And yet I wonder how much those actually penetrated into the popular zeitgeist, uh, because you know it did not seem to really attach to the governor, even though several of these trials involved his aides. Um, and it was certainly a part of what editorial boards talked about and what his opponents talked about. But I don't know at the end of the day if corruption was as big a part of the New York story for people who are not in the media as it was for those of us on the inside. It's this interesting dichotomy where it didn't seem to be, but then also the people who do care about these things clearly got the attention of some of the elected officials, including the governor. And he knows, again, with a Democratic state Senate, he knows there's certain action that he just has to put up or shut up. Um, and, and we're going to see that in 2019. But for 2018, the question of whether uh, corruption mattered to voters really is something I struggle to wrap my head around. We saw in the primary that Cynthia Nixon talked about it a lot, and she got the same percentage of the vote that Zephyr Ticha got, a lot more raw votes, but still. And then Mark Molinaro and others in the general election really talked a lot about it. And it turns out that maybe that was a mistake. Maybe they should have really been focused more on other issues, pocketbook, kitchen table issues, big, bold proposals that I think were really missing from Molinaro and some of the other general election candidates. Um, but it was it was a bit dispiriting to see some of that. And at this point, the governor has even claimed that these trials, because they didn't touch him really, really directly, <laughs> have exonerated him. Exculpated him, yeah. right. There's an old uh, kind of political joke, or it's a, it's a metaphor 
metaphor about two guys walking in the woods. They see a bear approaching. One guy stops to put on his sneakers, and the other guy's like, you're not going to outrun the bear. And he's like, I don't have to outrun the bear, just to outrun you. I think this election, Andrew Cuomo and his money were positioning him against Trump. Trump is obviously seen as the locus of all corruption. He is the evildoer in government. He's the bad guy. And I think that it's very difficult for a narrative to also thread into it the idea that even people who are opposed to Trump might have corruption issues of their own. So I think that was a big part of this, is I think Trump's looming over everything we talk about in public affairs, politics or policy, really shaping just how people perceive good guys and bad guys. And so running down the list of people that we're talking about, not all of which had anything to do with the governor, but Eric Schneiderman, not corruption per se, but obviously severe moral failings, as as alleged. Uh, Joe Percoco, longtime uh, aide to the governor, involved in accepting bribes. Um, Alan Kelioros from uh, SUNY Polytechnic, one of the architects of Buffalo Billion. Uh, Steve Pigeon, uh, longtime uh, lobbyist and sort of... uh, Western New York sort of operative. Fixer, as they say. The NYPD corruption trials involving donors to the mayor and people uh, in high levels there. And I got to just quickly say on that, I mean, that has really been eye-opening about the mayor and the way that he, I mean, we had others, other examples of this, but it, that's also helped drive home the attention that he pays to donors, his willingness to engage with people that he doesn't seem to know very well, but to give them lots of attention uh, because they're helping to fundraise for him. Now, you could say that that's the vast majority of elected officials do stuff like that, and I think that's probably true. I mean, you have to raise money to win elections, right? But and we've seen some backlash against that and people relying on small dollars, and de Blasio, you know, is supposed to be, quote-unquote, better than that. But just it was fairly astonishing to see his relationship with donors that we saw come out both in the trial and some freedom of information, release of information, and then also, you know, the mayor sort of downplaying it all while it still comes out, you know, leading up to when we're talking that they didn't even turn turn over all the emails from the mayor to these donors that they were supposed to turn over. And just to all say, it's almost like that that whole de Blasio and the emails and the donors thing, it's really like the hundred years war. It seems to keep going on and on. It was coming out uh, right before the election year. There was the investigation of him at the federal and at the state level and some emails being released because of the agents of the city lawsuit and now more coming out in this trial. It just seems to roll on and on and on. Um, even if any of the individual cuts weren't significant, and some of them have been, the death by a thousand cuts is certainly one thing that the mayor is at risk of. Um, as you just mentioned, wrapping up the, the corruption rundown is that we also had the retrial of two major figures, former figures in state Feels politics. Feels like they've been on trial for about three years in a row. <laughs> and that's uh, Dean Skilos and uh, Sheldon Silver retried because of a Supreme Court ruling and getting exactly the same result. Right. Okay, fourth big storyline of 2018 that we want to take a couple minutes to talk about is also, of course, especially relevant as we move towards 2019, and that is the state of NYCHA. Now, this is an area where city limits, you guys do great reporting. Uh, what's your sort of take on what what we should take away from 2018 regarding NYCHA? I think that de Blasio um, woke up finally to the reality of his NYCHA problem, which is that while he had done quite a bit for NYCHA, often because he was pushed, but spending a lot of money, uh, attempting to change some dynamics, but being um, reluctant to devote the kind of merrill attention required, being reluctant to really kind of shake up the apple cart and talk about financing models, which are all very difficult to discuss. You know, we see certainly by the end of the year with the uh, judge rejecting the first settlement, um, the extent to which the mayor is, is willing to make this a major part of his second term, fully take ownership. And 
frankly, be willing to take some political risks and some political damage to get some of these controversial and not all all unproblematic ideas across the finish line. You know, you've written about this, I think, very smartly, and that is the mayor's problem where he took more ownership of NYCHA than his predecessors and is therefore now taking a lot more heat about NYCHA than his predecessors. And now we've also seen revelations around things like heat, things like lead uh, paint and uh, water outages and lying to cover some of those things up, which again, there was falsified stuff for the, or the test stop happening under the prior administration. And, you know, the mayor always can point to almost always can point to some stuff that he got a bad hand when when things were delivered to him when he took over. But, you know, that's sort of wearing fairly thin now that he's finishing up year five. I'll also say on NYCHA, however, that part of that taking ownership, at least to some significant extent early on, he put forward a pretty big NYCHA plan, this NYCHA next generation, and it's turned out to be nothing near what is really needed to get NYCHA back on track. And now he's got his NYCHA 2.0 plan that he just released before the end of the year. And assuming they get some things worked out with the federal authorities, the movement on that is going to be one of the most important storylines of 2019. And we can get back to that. But but it frustrates me and many others, I think, that this type of aggressive plan really could have been what he pushed in 2014 or 15, and now we're going into almost the end of 18, and he's putting it out, although it is controversial because you're talking about a real ramping up of that infill program. Speaking of the federal angle, here is uh, the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District, uh, Greg Berman, uh, talking about the settlement back in June. Today, we announce a settlement to ensure that the old ways of doing business at NYCHA are over. This settlement between this office, the City of New York, and the New York City Housing Authority, or NYCHA, is unprecedented and will profoundly improve the living conditions of over 400,000 NYCHA residents. For too long, these residents have had to put up with conditions that are indecent, unsafe, and unsanitary. They have to live in apartments with peeling lead paint, out-of-control mold, heat that doesn't work in the winter, elevators that are broken, and infestation of pests. Today marks the beginning of the end of this nightmare for NYCHA residents. And of course, that settlement uh, did not end up satisfying the judge. And one of the things we'll be talking about the next half hour is uh, steps steps coming out of that. But uh, to round out our list of the top five kind of big stories of 2018, Ben, we'll stick right with the mayor and his problems. Um, a year ago, he was celebrating a landslide victory, being reelected to office. The first time that had happened to a Democrat since Ed, Cro- Ed Koch, um, heading into a second term. There were warning signs about the amount of political capital he had, warning signs about the kind of city council he was going to have to deal with. But I think this year, even given those expectations, has been a rough one for the chief executive. It has. And I think, you know, we've talked about this previously on this show, the criticism that, you know, Bill de Blasio doesn't care that much, I think is misfounded in, a, in some ways, but he also reinforces in others. It's very tricky. I mean, you know, anybody that wants to sort of help make sure the record is fair, uh, 
you know, would give the mayor some credit for, you know, this, I mean, this is certainly a guy who cares about the city, has put forward a lot of programs. I mean, he's, he's done something in virtually every area that he thinks sort of fits his progressive vision, uh, some more aggressive than others. But, you know, he gives this impression that he's a bit checked out. He's more concerned with national affairs. You know, he was totally sidelined in the state elections, largely because on a personality level, a lot of people don't like him. On politics, he often doesn't play it right. So people are keeping it at arm's distance. And even though he was reelected resoundingly, there's only a few neighborhoods in the city where he's clearly sort of a more of a hero than anything else to New Yorkers. And given that crime is low and the economy is good, it's really a shame that he hasn't done more to to make himself more popular. And of course, a lot of his popularity problems come from the left. And the mayor recently was on the Brian Lehrer show talking about that. And he got a little emotional talking about what he would like to say to his critics on the left. I think we have stymied the right. I think the left is always going to demand a more and more equitable society. But on the specifics, a lot of times I'm saying to my brothers and sisters on the left, look at the specific things. If we get 25,000 to 40,000 jobs for people who need jobs, including public housing residents and CUNY students, that is progressive. That's progressive. We want to make sure Amazon does the most possible for New York City. But I'm not going to apologize for bringing in 25,000 jobs and tens of billions of dollars in tax revenue that will help us fund public housing, affordable housing, job training, etc. People have to have an honest conversation. That's, that's what I want to push back on. Brothers and sisters on the left, I'm with you on all the larger things we're trying to achieve. But when it comes to specific issues, let's be straightforward and honest. Look everything I just delineated on criminal justice reform. The mayor raises some f- yes. fair <laughs> points. You know, uh, you can't you can't fault all of them. Um, it was interesting that he went to Amazon as an example of his progressive. Um, not 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 where I would necessarily go. Well, that was also you know that was part of the topic of the moment. Correct, so he was correct. trying to sort of blend the criticism over bringing Amazon to the city with the broader critique, which I thought leading up to that clip, Brian Lair had you know very artfully sort of given him several examples and say, you know, this is where people are frustrated with you. Are you, you know, have you, he's, you know, have you changed, you know, and, and the mayor insists that he hasn't, but he's seen the party, you know, move, which he says he's very happy about. But, you know, he's sort of more moderate in several ways that have really frustrated people. And that comes with housing and economic development and uh, police uh, accountability. And he is a conventional politician, a very progressive conventional politician. And there are times when our current times might require something else. And I think that's that's part of his problem. I think, frankly, part of this, too, though, is that de Blasio wants a fair shake. And sometimes he's not going to get that. And I think that he has a choice to make now with three years left in his term. And let's face it, most likely three years left to his political career as an elected official. Are those going to be like this past year? Or is there a chance that it might be something different? And I think trying to litigate and relitigate what credit he's gotten, what he hasn't, whether the press is being fair to him every day or it isn't, that's one way he could do it. Or he could try to change the temperature and change the contours and try a different way. Not that that's simple, but I think uh, it'd be it'd be pretty brutal if we have three more years like this one, not just to him, but to his larger program. Right, and I, I've been saying this for years, and so have others. I don't understand why he doesn't own his victories more. He does very few, relatively very few public events to sort of go inspect the program and just talk. You know, he, he it's almost like, you know, it's symbolic of his larger schema where, you know, he almost thinks like every press event needs 
needs to be some big announcement. It's like, no, just go go show New York or something funny, that's working. It's funny, to his credit, he actually does not like the optics of politics. And I think, you know, sometimes we talk about how phony some of these guys are and the fact that he doesn't like the photo ops. He doesn't like rolling things out. Marketing is not his thing. And to some degree, that's admirable. That's the same reason why he kept going to the stupid gym because he knew it was something people didn't like and he wasn't going to change because of that. And you got to give him credit for that as a person. But optics matter in politics. That's why we call it politics. And I think that um, sometimes, yeah, playing your part in the dog and pony show is the show you've been invited to. And we, we also should just say quickly, and we'll get back to de Blasio later when we look ahead, but I do want to mention, you know, some of the stuff that really came up for him this year, we've mentioned a few of them, but, you know, what he's doing about homelessness continues to be a sore point because he's really just clearly not doing enough to reduce the number of homeless people in New York. Uh, he had this really tricky situation with his Department of Investigation commissioner, which made nobody look good. Uh, his education reforms look like they're not really panning out, at least to some extent. I mean, again, this is a place where we need to be fair that he was trying to take a different approach to really invest in the most struggling schools. And yeah, that's that's a very tough haul. But he needs to be someone that is able to be a little more nimble. He's he's too stubborn. You know, you were just getting at it almost in a slightly positive light. But, you know, it certainly works against him and probably works against the city. We will be back in a moment to talk about the year ahead. You're listening to Max and Murphy on WBAI. You're listening to Max and Murphy on WBAI Radio, 99.5 FM and WBAI.com. Org, listener-sponsored, non-commercial radio. This is the year-end show for Max and Murphy as we close out 2018 and look ahead to 2019. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette with Jarrett Murphy from City Limits. We just went over some of our takeaways of the biggest story lines of 2018, New York City, New York State, and just touched on a few other national storylines. And before we get into our top 10 stories to look ahead to 2019, let's just take a couple minutes, Jarrett, to talk about some of the stories at City Limits, at Gotham Gazette, that we're most proud of, I guess, uh, of the year that we're completing. Well, I was very proud of our joint coverage of election 2018. I thought we, you know, focused on some of the interesting races there, some of the issues. I was proud of that. But in our own shop, we did a series about teacher absences. We were just talking about de Blasio's record on schools. This is an uncovered part of the school problem. Uh, teachers not showing up, uh, teachers turning over because the job is is so uh, grueling, uh, and inability to find a certified teachers for particular jobs and uh, and postings, a big deal. We had a series about the bus system, which at that point in the year was kind of getting short shrift compared to subway. Bus system is essential to many particular populations like the elderly and disabled, but especially outer borough, New York. Um, so we had a great series on that. The LLC uh, investigation we did was uh, a favorite of mine just because I got piece. to look at Excel spreadsheets for a few weeks. And then I was really uh, charmed by a, a piece that kind of came to us, a series of pieces about gentrification the world over, looking at stuff from South Africa, the Philippines, and elsewhere. The fact that many of the same themes and concerns are playing out elsewhere, obviously in very different political systems with different racial histories, but this is not just a New York story, even a U.S. story. It's basically happening everywhere. And for you? 
And well, I, I would also just say, you know, kudos on those stories and a lot more. And if folks aren't regularly looking at what's the latest at citylimits.org, you really should be. Uh, I'm proud of what we do at Gotham Gazette, but also City Limits is, is really doing fantastic work. And if you're listening to this show, you know, you have a sense of obviously the publications that we run and a value in local media. You're a WBAI listener, at least for an hour a week, but hopefully for more. Uh, and so, you know, we appreciate your support. And if you're looking for some really good substantive stories, you know, that's what uh, both our publications provide. Uh, I'll just quickly say, you know, I was proud of the sort of two big themes of our coverage for the year. One was the elections. We did a lot in the attorney general race because I thought that was so important. And also the one, at least in the Democratic primary, where it seemed like things were a bit uncertain. Uh, and then we covered really in depth, maybe <laughs> too much, the 2018 Charter Vision Commission that the mayor called. Um, and, you know, it had fairly modest outcomes, but I think it was very important. And I heard from a lot of readers that appreciated that we were covering it, you know, to, to let people know what was going on, to let people know the ballot proposals they put out, to let people know the things that they did not put on the ballot, like instant runoff voting, and some of the things they decided not to look into, like bigger, meaty stuff that the 2019 Charter Revision Commission will be dealing with. And then just a couple other stories, you know, those are two big themes, but a couple other stories for us, you know, we did a story on whether New York City should have a big comprehensive city plan. It is it is one of the only big cities, I believe, in the world that does not have one. There's some talk that this next Charter Revision Commission might require one. So that is just fascinating and I think really speaks to all sorts of planning and equity issues. Uh, and I'm really proud of the piece that we put together about New York City not having one, why, why maybe it should. And then lastly, I'll just say, um, you know, one of the other things that we did a lot at the beginning of the year, which I was happy to look back on before the show, was we covered a lot about the transition to the new city council speaker, Corey Johnson. And we looked at, you know, some of his record and some of his promises as speaker. And early on, was he fulfilling them? And, you know, how was he staffing up? And was he following his promise to equity and things like that? And we certainly need to return some of our focus to him now that the elections are over. Um, but those are some of the big ones for, for us. You know, I don't know what I would do without GothamGazette.com. And I also don't know what I would do without WBAI. We should mention we had his podcast for many, many months and it began as a radio show this summer and I think it has really transformed it. It's been great to um, not only have some excellent guests coming on to be on live radio and people making themselves accountable to us and to listeners, but the great calls from listeners, people who are so intelligent and engaged and of course our wonderful producer Reggie who's always there pushing the buttons and we assume making our voices be heard outside, though we can't necessarily tell. We just have to take <laughs> his word for it. Same time. But so looking ahead, 2019 Obviously, a lot of these storylines come right from the big stories of 2018, the biggest one being what will Democrats do with total control of state government? And I think we all know the big question is there. They're going to go places. How far will they go? That's exactly right. And now you have, you know, you've had a Democratic governor, but he has vacillated sometimes on his policies and his politics and exactly where he fits. And he said some things that he said he's consistently behind, but people want to now see him put up. Uh, the Democratic Assembly has had a long agenda for a long time. They pass as one house bills. There's a lot of discussion. We did a fun article on this uh, about are they still going to pass those things now that they would have a real shot in the Senate? And now you have a new 
Senate Democratic majority. And the question there is, how cohesive will that be? You know, the IDC was a very unique, in some ways bizarre development for several years, but it reflected cleavages that had long been in that conference. And any conference that embraces a state like New York, which is vast, 18 million people, it's physically a huge state. You have 40 Democrats. There is ideological diversity. There is obviously geographic diversity. The other more common forms of diversity are there. Can Andrea Stewart-Cousins hold that group together? Here is uh, the incoming majority leader talking about her approach to this new term. I think it means that people see that once again, uh, another, you know, glass ceiling, you know, marble ceiling, whatever you want to call it, has been broken. You know, we make certain assumptions about how far we've come, and we have in many ways. But I think every day we're also being reminded that there is more ground that has to be covered, more ceilings to break. There are more opportunities to show our children, grandchildren children that, you know, this American dream really, you know, does mean something and and is attainable and is certainly worth fighting for. And that was uh, the incoming Senate Majority Leader on the show with us. Uh, we appreciated having some of her time. And as you said, you know, it was great to talk to a lot of these elected officials who are either going through election season uh, themselves in tough races or just uh, cruising to re-election in her case and then looking ahead to the next year. She has a very tough challenge, but she wants it. Uh, and the Democrats want to obviously be in charge of the state Senate. And now they need to get on the same page, pass a program at at least they have to have, you know, sort of a January, February, March that is that is solid, uh, cohesive. You know, there can be, of course, some debate. We, that'd be great. I mean, government should have debate, um, but they need to show that they can they can lead. And she uh, seems to believe she can. But as you indicated, not only do they now have a 40 member conference, most likely in the 63 seat chamber, which is incredible. You know, they can sort of have a few members who aren't into a certain policy and still pass it easily. But, you know, they have 15, I believe, new senators, right? These are brand new people to the state Senate. So it's a lot of getting people up to speed and then sort of wrangling them and seeing how those people react to being really in the limelight and trying to follow through on the things they promised during their elections. And such a varied and complicated, um, or or I should say comprehensive agenda, reproductive rights, criminal justice reforms, questions about the voting system here and campaign finance, um, as well as congestion pricing are just, you know, it's it's a long long list to get through. And, you know, the DREAM Act and then question, you know, on each of these topics, we can say, or many of these topics, we can say, here's some stuff that seems like everybody's in agreement. And then here's the reach stuff that maybe legislators have been talking about, but the governor's not that into, or the assembly has passed, but the Senate might not be there. And so some of the interesting things to watch, you know, are things like, what are the details of the campaign finance reform? Uh, do they try to take up driver driver's licenses for undocumented immigrants? And then the, one of the big ones everybody, of course, is focused on, and we just recently talked to a couple people about this topic is universal health care, single payer health care in New York. The governor's against it. The two majority leaders of the legislature have basically said this is not a top priority. 
but we'll see. I wonder how the ruling last week by the federal court on Obamacare, on the um, Affordable Care Act, invalidating the individual mandate and therefore basically scrapping the whole law, how that changes that dynamic. Because the governor has said what he said, and it's an easy thing to say, it's a great idea, but we shouldn't do it alone. I'm, I'm concerned about us standing alone and doing it. I'm concerned about transition costs. Valid concerns, certainly. But when you are talking about New York State trying to do single payer versus just having Obamacare with everybody else, that's one dynamic. When you're talking about New York State trying to do single payer if Obamacare falls apart, that changes it. And you could look at it one of two ways. Either it makes the state taking that leap seem riskier or it makes the state taking that leap seem more necessary. And I think for me, everything else that's on the table this year, including some incredibly important and dramatic things, really is separate from the Health Act because that is such a profoundly ambitious thing for people to do. That is the high-hanging fruit separated from all the other fruit on the tree. Right. And, you know, other things we should mention, of course, they're probably going to pass the Child Victims Act. They're going to have to deal with rent regulations that de- that affect a million New York City apartments. That might not be done till after the budget, you know, later in the legislative session, or they might try to move it into the budget. We're not going to be able to list everything. There's fighting climate change, of course. You know, the governor laid out his 2019 agenda towards the end here of this year. Uh, and he, he used the phrase Green New Deal, although I think his Green New Deal is very different than the way other people describe a Green New Deal, although we don't know all the details yet. But that gets me to my last point on sort of, um, you know, our big story, number one of the year ahead, which is Democrats taking full control of the state government. And that is that this is an immensely important year for Andrew Cuomo. He's already sort of gotten out and given his speech about his first hundred days agenda. I think he wanted to, you know, he tied himself to FDR when doing it. And he wanted to, um, you know, get out ahead of the legislature to really be the one who is setting the agenda. And he knows that he has a very good shot here of bringing home a lot of these progressive wins that people have criticized him for for not getting done. Speaking of FDR, who was a New York governor who then uh, sought and achieved a higher office, obviously one of the talking points in 2019 is going to be people lining up for the 2020 presidential race. Many of those candidates are already being active. And there are a couple... or three, actually, with New York State ties that are are bandied about as potential names. Former Mayor Michael Bloomberg, um, junior junior U.S. Senator uh, Kristen Gillibrand, and of course the aforementioned Andrew Cuomo, who says he's not running. So, and I think I think for now we keep him in that category. But as I've said on this show and and other places, I think we'll check back in with him once he ticks off a lot of this big progressive wish list. And maybe he's making a lot of national waves. We didn't even mention recreational marijuana being legalized. You know, that's one of the ones that coming out of his speech got a bunch of national headlines for the governor. Um, So so we'll see if he you know, his ears perk up a bit again, even though, you know, as we see with Gillibrand, you can say you're not doing it and then change your mind. And it's not going to have a lot of political costs. I think that's a little bit different different for a governor who has to manage the state than a senator, but she seems like she's getting pretty close to running. Another story we're watching, the story number three on our list of 10, if we get to all of them, is the New Yorkers in this new Congress where you're going to have a Democratic House um, emboldening Democrats probably in both bodies and in the senior body, the Senate. Uh, Chuck Schumer is the minority leader, will be playing a crucial role. And in the House, uh, Gerald Nadler um, being very heavily involved in whatever the investigations of the president shape up to be. And then you have, as we mentioned before, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, 
even as a rank and file member, you know, we'll see what kind of committee she winds up with, et cetera. But she's obviously going to get a lot of media attention. She's going to help set the agenda. She's going to push Democrats. At least it seems like that's that's her plan still, that she's going to be very aggressive on the things she believes in and that she can really command attention. So she's going to be an interesting factor. Um, but I think Nadler is clearly in the catbird seat. It's going to be fascinating to see what Democrats do with the House, both in terms of investigations, but also setting a national discussion around policy. I mean, they can pass things in the U.S. House that really set the discussion for the presidential race, to to some extent at least. So it'll be very interesting to see what they do there. And on one of those policy lines, here is uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez talking about her idea for a Green New Deal. It's unsurprising that the response to any bold proposal that we have is to incite fear. The only way we are going to get out of this situation is by choosing to be courageous. That's the only way we're going to get out of this. And when, first of all, it's just plain wrong. The idea that we're going to somehow lose economic activity, as a matter of fact, uh, it's not just possible that we will create jobs and economic activity by, tr- by uh, transitioning to renewable energy, but it's inevitable that we are going to create jobs. It's inevitable that we're going to create industry. And it's inevitable that we can use the transition to 100% renewable energy as the vehicle to truly deliver and establish economic, social, and racial justice in the United States of America. And so, yeah, she comes in, I think, as you said, probably the most famous freshman member of Congress since um, that guy who played Cooter on the Dukes of Hazard got elected. Maybe even more A little before my that. time. Yeah. Uh, um, okay, moving on. Yes. There's, there'll be endless things to discuss on that. Maybe we'll have Nadler and or uh, Ocasio-Cortez uh, on the show in 2019. It would be great to dip our toes a little bit into what's happening in Washington. Our fourth big storyline for 2019 is an immense amount of housing policy and programs that need to be dealt with. We've talked about NYCHA quite a bit already. You're the housing publication. Uh, we, we do a little bit, but what are you looking at in housing? Well, I think the rent regulations we mentioned during the policy discussion about uh, Albany, those are crucial to about a million apartments. Rezonings possible in Gowanus, uh, Bushwick, and Bay Street. Um, very interesting discussion, I think, possible about the property tax, which has been kicked around for a while. Some real quirks and an equities in the way the city does it now. And then a process that has flown very much below the radar called Where We Live NYC, which is New York's version of what was supposed to be a HUD induced nationwide jurisdiction by jurisdiction conversation about fair housing and the extent to which affordable housing efforts do or don't exacerbate problems with fair housing. New York City took on the task of having its own discussion. That's rolling on now with some um, recommendations due um, later in the year, but that could have that along with a a lawsuit over the practice of awarding 50% of new affordable apartments to people in the community board, which is being attacked on fair housing grounds, could reshape to some degree the way we talk about affordable housing in the city. There is a lot there. We've covered it in some of our Agenda 2019 work, so folks should check out those articles because it's a lot to take in as we just sort of list stuff that's under the housing banner. There's going to be a lot. This is the nuts and bolts of government. You know, this is important stuff. This is different than, you know, is Ocasio-Cortez's star rising, you know, although there's substance there, of course. You know, this is really important stuff about where people live and how. I'm very interested to see where those rezonings go. I'm perhaps most interested to see where this NYCHA infill plan goes and if the mayor can move it in any real aggressive way and 
I'm not saying I support it necessarily, although I don't know that there's really many other options. And that also ties into whether he might do some new things to deal with homelessness. There's a lot of pressure on him to change his affordable housing plan. We talked about it on the show uh, a couple weeks ago to allocate more units for individuals experiencing homelessness when they come out of homelessness. And it seems like that's the type of thing that Corey Johnson, the city council speaker, might really make a big issue of in 2019. So that would be interesting to watch. Underlying all of this, obviously, is who's, how we're going to pay for it and fiscal issues always on the table for government, particularly this year, as we'll see the impact of the changes to the treatment of salt, um, state and local taxes in federal taxes. Um, what will the MTA capital plan cost? How will we pay for it beyond congestion pricing? The question of you know state government deficits, the question of the city's budget and, and how big that is getting for you know legitimate purposes, but still it is getting larger, and that certainly alarms some people. I think that will be part of this discussion, especially because there are increasing signs that the economic boom we've enjoyed for so long um, is perhaps finally beginning to peter out and and lose some altitude. And that would materially change everything about the discussion we've had over the past decade. Yeah, as I said earlier, the mayor's had an incredible economy and growing revenue to be able to grow the budget significantly. We're going to first in the new year deal with the state budget. That'll be fascinating and a lot of wrangling over the MTA. Uh, I'll just, on this topic, uh, we'll move on, but I'll just, I'll direct people to the big budget preview that we did as part of Agenda 2019 at Gotham Museum, where we really laid out the fiscal issues facing the state and the city and where they come together on things like the MTA and NYCHA and, and even CUNY that uh, are often not as, as discussed. One of the big stories of the year will be Letitia James. Here is her talking about uh, how she's going to approach her new office. I'm running um, to be the people's lawyer, and that will be my guiding principle. Um, and so if a state official step over the line, I'll not hesitate to prosecute. If I disagree with a, disagree with a state action, I'll make that abundantly clear. I'll make sure that, that the laws in the state of New York are enforced. I'll make sure that uh, we go after individuals uh, um, in Washington, D.C. who refuse to enforce the law, stand up for the rights of individuals who are marginalized and underrepresented and, and invisible, and, uh, um, and we'll fight for systematic reforms in Albany. Um, and uh, all throughout the state of New York. And so Tish James, as the first uh, female uh, attorney general, first attorney general of color in New York State, in office with potentially vast powers, and one that has been cast as a bulwark against Donald Trump. Be very interesting to see what she does with that. Three quick buckets for Letitia James. One, Trump. Two, the nuts and bolts work of the AG's office, which is uh, underrated, under-discussed. You know, it's lots of consumer protection and housing regulations and all sorts of things that the New York Attorney General's office is the people's law firm. Hundreds of lawyers, they need to uphold the law. Uh, a lot of it is is that type of stuff. And then number three is this relationship with state government and in other parts of state government, the governor, the legislature, local elected officials, where is she at on these issues of corruption and oversight? Does she have a strong voice? Is she independent of the governor? Does she push for reform? Does she push for this blanket referral to investigate public corruption that all of her prede- or her recent predecessors have pursued and not been granted, even though some of them went from AG to governor. Uh, a lot of interesting questions for her. I, as someone who focuses more local, will be very disappointed if there's so much oxygen taken up by the Trump stuff 
that she is not, you know, a strong voice and actor on, you know, the local stuff. And that doesn't just mean illegal corruption, right? That's sort of ethical government. Yeah, ditto, ditto to that, definitely. We'll be seeing next steps on Amazon. That's story seven on our list. That is an ongoing story. It uh, obviously continues to kind of roll out details of the plan and um, arguments by the opposition. Kind of flew out of the sky a little bit. I mean, we knew it was coming, but then boom, it landed. It came and right after Election a, Day, and it has deal. really dominated um, discussions, and it, it's formed a background of some of the other stories we've talked about in terms of, of Cuomo and the MTA and de Blasio. And the race to replace Tish James, which, which is going to be coming up here exactly in February, right. or is already happening, but the vote will be in February, the special election for public advocate. Mark your whole February calendar right now. We don't know the date yet, but <laughs> just keep it free. Right. Don't, don't, don't leave voting, town. You'll be voting in February at some point. Charter revision, the council's uh, approach, which is has a much broader canvas to paint on than the 2018 version, which I'm so glad you guys covered because it's absolutely something that was important to cover, um, could potentially change things like the city's planning process, other aspects of budgeting, and the way democracy works in the city uh, could be could be the most significant change since 1989 when after the Supreme Court ruling they had to get rid of the Board of Estimate really create the city government we have today if they do what they have said they're gonna do that will be the case and we need to uh, really pay close attention to what they're considering why if it seems like there's any undue influence related to special interests the people that appoint the commission members you know and their agendas uh, you know we need to pay very special attention to this charter Revision Commission because they're going to be doing some sweeping things. At least that's what they say they're planning to do. As you mentioned earlier, a big question now as de Blasio enters his seventh, six, six sorry, six, Feels like himself, uh, is whether he can turn around this narrative um, of, of constant um, acrimony, the idea that he is uh, failing, which in many ways is unfair, uh, but it really is up to him to make some different calculations or decide not to if he is true to his course and this is just what it's going to be like. But can he turn things around? And frankly, that's not just a political question because that revolves around real substantive issues. Homelessness, NYCHA, this isn't just about optics. This is about his ability to govern and to make progressive government look like it can truly succeed over an entire two-term span. He needs to rethink some of his approach. Uh, That's clear. But I don't have a lot of faith that he will. He's very stubborn. We'll see. But he should. And I wouldn't be shocked if he did. But also, you know, it's important to realize that just like when he started as mayor, he was late all the time. He corrected that. He can make corrections to some of these things. It might be a little bumpy when everybody's mocking him even while he's correcting it, right? Because they're still pointing out the problem. But we've mostly stopped talking about that. So he can do that in some other ways. And lastly, I think this is something that we mentioned as a a national story uh, in the 2018 arena, but um, New York's efforts against climate change, there's been some new news on that, the city trying to get greener. Um, Obviously, the increasingly alarming reports, all the evidence this summer that climate change was already a reality, um, increasing the urgency of that. And I would say it's not just about doing our bit to reduce our carbon footprint, try to forestall what appears inevitable, but to brace for the inevitable, talking about resiliency, preparing for a higher sea, more storms, a different world than we're used to living in. You know, the governor, as we mentioned, has said he wants to do a Green New Deal for New York. Like I said, we have to see what the details really wind up looking like. (laughs) But we need to see from leaders in New York some real plans on 
city, state, and other local efforts uh, to prepare for this future, to reduce emissions, all that sorts of all that sort of stuff. They, you know, in New York, they talk about the federal government needing to show more urgency. So they need in New York, of course, to show more urgency. We're going to say goodbye. I'll just add a couple of quick honorable mention stories. Queens DA race in 2019, the trial of Daniel Pantaleo at the NYPD, uh, next steps on closing Rikers. Uh, you know, these are some other big ones that we didn't quite uh, get a chance to discuss, but a lot coming up. And a lot more coming up on Max and Murphy. Thanks for being with us this year. Please join us in 2019. Happy, happy new year and tune in next Wednesday. Happy new year. Happy new year.